You know, a few years ago, Pope Francis came to um, uh, Philadelphia and also to D.C. and uh, New York. He came to Philadelphia for the World Meeting of Families, and I was able to go out there as a priest. I think this was 2015. Able to go out there with a group. There were some kids from uh, SVSU, CMU, also a few high schoolers. Um, went uh, with a couple of priests. And we actually stayed at a camp called Camp Saginaw, believe it or not, in Pennsylvania. Like, honestly, I'm like, where did you find this place? So, but anyway, it was a really beautiful, uh, beautiful experience. And um, uh, one of the nights in Philadelphia, there was a, a festival of families, you know, some talks, some music, and the Pope shared some remarks. And as the Pope was sharing some remarks, he, he did some spontaneous remarks. And our group had already left. But there were big screens set up all throughout the city, and we saw all oh, the popes talking, so let's stop and listen to them. So that's what we did. And he starts to talk about the family, you know, and just how the family is, is a factory of hope. It was that speech that he gave, that, uh, uh, that analogy that the family is a factory of hope. Beautiful um, talk that he gave, spontaneous talk that he gave. And, and as he's giving this talk, you know, I remember just looking around and people on the streets and I mean, you had babies in arms, you had um, young couples, you had older couples, you had you know, someone in a wheelchair, you, you had everything when it came to family, you know, every, every age, every experience. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, this is, this is really good. Like, family is, is just a great gift from God, you know. I just remember thinking that as I took in the scene as the Pope was talking and looked around the streets of Philadelphia. You know, and then lo and behold, you know, another, whatever, two years later or whatever, I was sent out to, to study that very thing. And so uh, very, very grateful for that. You know, but Pope Francis, when he was in Philadelphia, he talked to the bishops um, there, and he, and he was asking the question, what is the foremost pastoral challenge confronting the family today. Essentially, he didn't exactly pose it that way, but this was in in the background. And I thought that's a great thing to think about because what would we answer? I think we could probably come up with lots of different answers for that. You know, what are the challenges presenting, confronting families today? But he said, you know, the foremost pastoral challenge for the church when it comes to the family today is... Presenting the gift that it is. Not just getting hung up on the obstacles, hung up on the problems, which we need to be aware of those, and those are, those are very real. He said the challenge is we need to present the gift of the family. Right? Right? The good news of the family. That is the challenge. And I think that that was a great message that, that he gave. You know, um, John Paul II, in his um, document on the family, <clears throat> Uh, uh, said that the, uh, his big omission was that the family become what you are. Become what you are. This was his great mission uh, that he was saying to the family. Become what you are. It made me think um, there's that scene in The Lord of the Rings in the last movie in which uh, the king, Aragorn, who hasn't become king yet, but he's told that very thing, he's, he's told to put aside who he is and become who he was born to be, right? To live out his kingship, right? And to take um, responsibility in, um, 
in uh, leading the people. And I, I often think of that when I think of this message, become who you are, right? This is the message that <clears throat> is being given to the family. So you know, how, can we, how can we do that? You know, the image I think of when it comes to the family is this, this image. You know, Pope uh, John Paul talked about the family being both the subject and the object of the new evangelization, both who the church's missionary efforts are geared to, but also those who are doing the missionary work. And the image I get when I think about the family, who the family is, and the mission of the family in the world, is I think of the image of kindling, of fire. You know? I, I get made fun of a little bit here because I had a couple homilies in a row where I talked about fire and like stoking the fire. And like all these kids at this parish are going to start being pyromaniacs if you keep <laughs> preaching about stoking fires. But I'm doing it again. So, um, But the image of kindling, okay? When you want a fire to start, what do you do? You what? You pour, pour oil on it? Well, that is true. <laughs> no. Oh, blow on it. Yes, yes. No, that's true. Excellent. But you start with the small pieces, don't you? You don't go at the big logs and say, all right, light. I want a fire. No, you get the kindling. You gather it up. We as kids, we go find the little sticks, right? You know, and put them in the campfire. And that's where you start. And once that's on fire, then other stuff gets on fire. Then all of a sudden, you've got fire everywhere. So what does that tell us about our mission in the church? If we want renewal in the church, we can't just focus on the big logs. Right? We need to be going to the family. And if we do that, a couple families, they're going to set other families on fire, because that's what kindling does. Right? Then all of a sudden, we've got fire everywhere. Right? And what does fire do but attract people to its warmth? Attract people together, right? So this is our mission in the church, I think. Now, St. Catherine of Siena, she said that if you are who you should be, you will set the world on fire. You know, and I really believe that about us as individuals, of course, but also about, um, about the family. So I'm going to talk about prayer. Just to kind of help us with that, I'm going to start off by reading from John chapter 4, the uh, passage about the woman at the well. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. 
Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying, I do not have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking with you. At that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for, or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving his payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the disciples of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word, and they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. So the title... uh, 
for, for the talk comes, comes from that. If you knew the gift of God. Right? This is what Jesus says to her. If you knew the gift of God, you would ask and he would give you life-giving water. Right? So what is prayer? What is prayer? That's what we're here about, right? Now, the catechism in uh, number 2560, paragraph 2560, references this very passage in talking about prayer at the beginning section on prayer in the catechism. And this is what it says. The wonder of prayer is revealed beside the well where we come seeking water. There Christ comes to meet every human being. It is he who first seeks us and asks for a drink. Jesus thirsts. His asking arises from the depths of God's desire for us. Whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. God thirsts that we may thirst for him. You know, I I want to start that off when we think about our image of prayer, because I think it, sometimes it can be, it can be hard for us to understand what that means. For me, when I think about what is prayer, I think about giving Jesus a drink, and me also getting a drink from him. The encounter of two thirsts. Right? That's what the catechism says, right? You know? Theology on tap, right? That's what we're celebrating tonight, right? You know? But in a certain sense, theology always comes from the tap. Comes from the water, the wellspring, right? Comes from drinking of Jesus, right? Comes from experiencing the depth of his thirst for us. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard the letter that Mother Teresa, you know, sent to her sisters. Um, all about this reflection, I thirst, reflecting on the words, I thirst from Jesus on the cross. And she's writing in the person of Jesus. And I just want to read a little bit of that. Do you thirst for love? Come to me, all you who thirst. Do you thirst to be cherished? I cherish you more than you can imagine, to the point of dying on the cross for you. I thirst for you. Yes, that is the only way to even begin to describe my love for you. I thirst for you. I thirst to love you and to be loved by you. That is how precious you are to me. I thirst for you. Come to me and I will fill your heart and heal your wounds. I will make you a new creation and give you peace, even in all your trials. I thirst for you. You must never doubt my mercy, my acceptance of you, my desire to forgive, my longing to bless you and live my life in you. I thirst for you. If you feel unimportant in the eyes of the world, that matters not at all. For me, there is no one any more important in the entire world than you. I thirst for you. Open to me. Come to me. Thirst for me. Give me your life. And I will prove to you how important you are to my heart. I think one of the great problems, you know, in the world and when it comes to faith is we don't understand this. We don't understand Jesus' thirst for us. Right? And if we don't get that, cross doesn't make any sense, right? Faith doesn't make any sense, you know? 
We need to discover this, right? That's what drives him to come to the well to the Samaritan woman. That's what uh, brings him to want to be with us. And that, I think, is a good image for how we think of prayer. It's not just another thing to show up for in the midst of days filled with many tasks. And right, let's face it, we're busy, right? It's not just one more thing. It's giving Jesus a drink. It's us, right, drinking from that water as well. My mom's always after me for not drinking enough water, you know? The, you know, actual water. Um, <laughs> you know, she is, like, you're not drinking enough water, and it's true. Well, I think that we don't drink enough water in our Christian life, right? We're not going to the wellspring enough. We're not being attentive uh, to that thirst that the Lord has. And I think that this is really important. You know, we know that we're now in a culture that's, you know, as continues to shed um, its, its elements of Christianity, its elements of faith. There just was a new study out that said within the past 10 years or so, those saying that they're, those saying they're Christian has went down from something like 78% to 65% or something like that. Uh, that's a massive decline in 10 years. In Catholics, it's about 23 to 20. This is of the overall population in the United States. Just continuing decline of, rapid decline of, of Christianity. You know, in John Paul II, you know, he said this. He said that it's wrong to think that ordinary Christians can be content with a shallow prayer unable to fill their whole life, especially in the face of the many trials to which today's world subjects faith. They would not be only mediocre Christians, but Christians at risk. Christians at risk. And he also said when it comes to praying in the family, he said, by praying together with their children, the mother and the father are able to penetrate the depths of their children's hearts and to leave an impression that the future events will not be able to efface. You know, what? I, I, you know, I think that a child could probably get more from watching their mom and dad pray five minutes a day than probably from hearing a thousand homilies. You know, maybe that's a little exaggeration, but I think that it's really important for us to see how much that impacts, how much that impacts a child, you know? And we, you know, prayer was important in, in my home growing up. We, what we, we did is most days we would do, we would do a rosary, you know, and they, they say my um, older brother, and he's older than me, so I don't remember this, so I just get the stories passed down, but, you know, it was one time they were praying the rosary and they're praying the Hail Mary, and they're praying, and they, and they start to listen, like, what is he saying? And they realized he was saying, Hail Mary full of grapes. <laughs> you know, well, she probably did eat a lot of those too, I guess, you know. But, but I always loved that story because it's, it shows you from a young age, like children are just like ready for God. You know, their hearts are open. Their hearts are open to God no matter how young they are. So what can we learn about the family, learn about the family in helping to live out this call to uh, satisfy the thirst of Jesus. You know, I, in my thesis, what I wrote on, I wrote all about uh, looking at the baptismal priesthood, so how we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. And, and I particularly focused on, on the priestly dimension of that and tried to look at how could that be lived out in the family. And so I first just kind of had to look at, you know, what is a priest, right? You know, what, what, what is a priest, you know? Why do they exist? Why are they here? You know? And the first thing about a priest is that a priest is made holy by God, right? 
Priest receives a type of consecration made holy by God. What does that mean to be holy? In the scriptural sense, the biblical sense of what holiness means. Well, if someone asks us, you know, what, what does holy mean? We would tend to say something like, well, it means someone's, you know, perhaps really righteous, living a morally upright life, these types of things. That's obviously part of the picture, but that's not actually what the Bible means when it talks about holiness. The word for holiness in the scriptures means set apart, right? And so in the scriptures, it's only applied to God, right? We say, holy, holy, holy at the mass, right? Holy, holy, holy. That's right from the prophet Isaiah, right? This recognition that God is set apart. God is other. God is different from us, transcends us. That's what the holy, the word holy means. But because God wishes to encounter his people, he gives a portion of his holiness, right? To people or to things. So he sets aside people like priests in the Old Testament or sets aside the altar, right? Things, makes things holy so that he can be encountered. But the first thing that holiness means is set apart. Now, what does it mean that a family is holy then? It means that a family is set apart, belongs to God. Now, I think it's important for us just to remember that holiness doesn't just mean that life is perfect. Even think about the holy family. Think about the holy family for a second. You know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and what they endured in their life, right? Joseph wasn't expecting, you know, Mary to tell him that she was with child, right? right? You know, they're going to Bethlehem. He wasn't expecting, you know, there to be no room in the inn. Wasn't expecting to have to go to Egypt and, you know, find work, find a place to live. Weren't expecting to lose Jesus, you know, in, the, in Jerusalem and then look for him for a couple of days, right? What's the point that that was still a holy family, even though all these crazy things were happening in their life? Why? Because Jesus was at the center. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, God calls Abraham, right? God calls Abraham to leave his home to start, uh, essentially to be the father of Israel, right? He calls Abraham to leave his family, right? He comes with his wife, but he leaves the rest of his family and comes to the promised land. But it's also through Abraham that the promise that would govern all of salvation history is given. And what is that promise? Through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. This is the promise given to Abraham, and it's fulfilled through Abraham's seed, Jesus, right? But what is interesting about that, I think, is this. He first had to be called away from something in order for him to then be the instrument through which God would bless all. And that's the nature of what a priest means. A priest is set apart, not to stay apart, but set apart for the sake of helping to bless the whole, right? So what does that mean when it comes to thinking about family? I think what that means is this. We need to recognize that as a Christian family, right, we're set apart by God to belong to him, right, to live in a different way, right? But it doesn't mean staying apart, By belonging to the Lord, being set apart by him, being holy, you then are able to be in a position where you can 
bless the world, bless families. And that's what the idea is behind uh, this word of consecration. So that's what priests do. And, and the Second Vatican Council actually uses this language when it talks about marriage, that they're consecrated, consecrated for their vocation. You know, but what else do priests do, right, besides, you know, work on Sundays, right? Um, and, and no other day in the week, right? Um, priests offer sacrifice. Priests offer sacrifice. Right? And isn't that the life of a family? Right? Sacrifice which reveals to us the nature of love. When I think about sacrifice, this is what I think about. I don't know, do we have a cross in here? We need a cross in here. We do. Okay, we got one. Okay, so we have one. So when I think about sacrifice, this is what I think about. Right? I think about the two beams of the cross. Vertical beam, no, and a horizontal beam. Vertical beam expressing my love for God. And horizontal beam expressing my love for my neighbor. Doesn't the cross, in a certain sense, its very structure tell us how we are to live as a Christian? Right? By offering ourselves in love, which is what sacrifice means, sacrifice is about, to God and to his people. Isn't it true that in life as a family, there's so many opportunities to express that love? Sometimes it's, that's in big ways, right? Maybe it's caring for a sick, sp- sick spouse. Maybe it's, you know, getting up with the newborn. Or perhaps, you know, forsaking, you know, more wealth or ambition in order to be present to the home a little more. Or maybe it's just in small ways, right? Helping out with other tasks, saying, please, thank you, I'm sorry. Listening when preoccupied with something else you want to do, watch the football game or whatever, right? There's so many ways in our life to express this call to offer ourselves in love. But why does the priest exist? You know? Why does the priesthood exist in the Old Testament? It's a foreshadowing. Why does, because Christ is, is the one priest, right? What is the purpose of the priesthood? The whole purpose of the priesthood in the scriptures is this. Communion with God. God wants to dwell with his people, to walk in their midst. And the first time he did this was in a family was in the Genesis narrative, right? And that tells us something, right? It tells us something. As a matter of fact, if you read the Genesis narrative, and then you look back to in the scriptures when the temple is being built, there are many, many allusions in the Genesis narrative to the temple imagery. Many, many. It's very, very clear that the author is trying to, to make a connection between Eden and the temple, right? Um, in some ways, what was present in Eden is trying to be preserved in the temple. And that would continue in the consciousness of Israel. The temple was, right, the extraordinary place to encounter God, right? That's where, you know, the great sacrifices took place, right? But in the consciousness of the Jewish people, the home was also a place where God was encountered and radiated. And from that, that's where we have, you know, the background for our theology of the family being a domestic church, right? I think that's really important to think about, that God is encountered in a unique way, yes, in the church, but also, 
also in our families. You know, John Paul in his letter to families said that when Jesus is at Cana, he's proclaiming the truth, the divine truth about marriage. What is the divine truth about marriage? And John Paul says he does this in two ways. He does it through his presence and through his transforming water into wine. In other words, the divine truth about marriage tells us two things, which seem really basic, but I think are really transformative. And on the first one is this. Jesus is there. That's what we mean by calling it a sacrament, right? Jesus is there. And his love transforms, right? Transforms unforgiveness into forgiveness, right? Impatience into patience, despair into hope. The family, right? A family who is the Christian family through that sacrament of matrimony has access to a power source, right? Which is unlimited. Just need to get plugged in. You get plugged in to the Lord, right? Who is the source of the greatest love. You know, in the scriptures in the Old Testament, some of them wants me to play, right? He wants me to pray too, but right now God wants me to play. Do we see that? Do we recognize that God is interested in, in every aspect of our life, you know? I think when it comes to prayer, trying to bring in that aspect of play in the home is huge too. Some of my, my nephews, they love to just like play the mass, right? They love that. Like, it's, it's a real joy to them, and it helps them to, to enter into to the Mass. I mean, they still distract them while to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes, like every kid, right? But that's okay, right? They're receiving something really, really positive, something really, really good. Do we bring in the gift of, of play when it comes to our faith? You know, faith is fun, I mean, I'm not saying it's only fun, right? It has a lot of discipline, has a lot of challenges. It's always going to involve the cross, but is there anyone more joyful than the saints? No, there isn't. Do we have that same type of joy? And do we try when it comes to family, trying to make joy a part of how faith is passed on? I think that's really, really important. And also when it comes to thinking about family prayer, thinking about you know, the aspect of like pilgrimage, if you, if you remember in the scriptures, there were three times a year where they had to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feasts, you know, and often would be like male, I don't know if it was all of them, but sometimes males with like the younger, the younger males, you know, and I thought of that, imagine if one time a year, like, you know, men of faith took like younger men of faith on like a pilgrimage, said, hey, we're going to go to the cross in the woods and go hiking, do some manly things and go to Mass at Cross in the Woods, or something like that, or some type of pilgrimage, right? Imagine what that would have done for a boy's faith, right? right? And I think that's something we can think about. Do we try to incorporate an aspect of pilgrimage when it comes to passing on the faith? Maybe that's going to a holy place like Cross in the Woods, right? If you ask my dad, the whole UP is a holy place, right? <laughs> going somewhere in the UP, right, on pilgrimage. Or we got Detroit, right, with Salinas Casey Center. Or maybe you're on a vacation somewhere and thinking about, is there like a holy place that we could also make part of our vacation? Right? The idea of pilgrimage was so, so important. And I think we've lost a little bit of that, of journeying to holy places. This really does a lot in the consciousness 
of, of kids, consciousness of family and passing on the faith. And also when it comes to passing on the faith, thinking about the saints, really, really essential, right? Uh, I, when I was a kid, one of the things that inspired me most about the faith was the stories of the saints, right? It still is, it still is that way, but I remember from a young age being really attracted to the saints, really, really attracted to them. I think that that really does a lot for kids. So what can the family teach us about prayer? And then I'm going to get to just some questions on how we can enter into our personal prayer. I I want to say that um, I think we don't just want to think about how can prayer be lived out in the family, but what can the family teach me about what prayer is about? Just a couple of things. Now, first of all, you know, the family always reminds us what? That the child is a gift. John Paul II said the newborn child gives itself to its parents by the very fact of its coming into existence. Its existence is already a gift. The first gift of the creator to the creature. Think about that for a second, what he just said. Newborn child gives itself to its parents. We normally don't talk that way. The child's not a gift because he can help with the chores, right? He can now take out the trash, right? He can, you know, sweep the floors, right? That's not why children are gifts, though when they get to that age, have them do it, by all means, right? They are the gift. The very fact that they are here is a gift from God to their parents and to the world. Why is that important? I think oftentimes when it comes to prayer, we think we need to prove something to God. We think we need to show ourselves, show that we're worthy or or something like that. We forget that we are a gift. We forget that he is always looking upon us with that deep love and that deep desire. Right? Our relationship, our identity always is first. You know, it always is first. You know, in The Lion King, you know, a great scene in which um, uh, whatever the dad's name is, Mufasa, is um, Um, appearing in the sky, and he says, you've forgotten who you are. Remember who you are. I think we as Christians don't remember who we are. We don't remember that we're the beloved sons and daughters of God. We don't remember that he delights in us, that he loves us. I think remembering the reality of the family and how a child, simply by the fact that they are here, is a gift and brings joy to their parents, that helps us have a different frame of reference when we come to prayer. It's not about trying to prove something to God, trying to show we've got it all together, simply remembering that we are here, loved by him, and that brings him joy, is so important. You know, second of all, what can the family teach us about prayer? You know, I think sometimes it's easy for us to think about prayer. We want it to be, you know, successful. You know, is it working? Am I doing well? These types of things, right? No, but what does that mean? Think about a family. What does it mean to be a successful mom? Or what does it mean to say, you know, he's a good dad. He's really efficient, right? Those are, it's a bit odd to think about that way, those words when it comes to being a mom or a dad, right? 
You know, don't worry about prayer being successful. Don't worry about prayer being efficient. Just be faithful to it. You know, a priest told us one time, 95% of prayer is showing up, you know? It's true. Show up and the Lord will work. It's about being faithful. And isn't, isn't family very similar, right? You don't always have to be on your A game, right? But you show up. You're there for each other, you know? And I think that that teaches us a lot, right? I think sometimes we can get inhibitions like, well, I, I don't know. I, maybe I don't know how to pray. Maybe I can't do it. Maybe God doesn't care about what's going on in my life, right? Just to be there, right? Don't worry about efficiency, right? Relax and aim high, as I tell people. So, and then finally, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in prayer. Isn't it often true we're asking like, is prayer working? I don't know. Maybe God isn't hearing me. I feel like I'm just struggling with the same things, these types of things, whatever. These types of questions that can come in our life, right? Now, when it comes to prayer and fruitfulness, I just encourage you to think about the image of a child growing in the womb, right? Or a seed growing beneath the soil, right? You can't see it. You can't see it, but it's happening, can't see it, but it's happening. I think that's often how fruit is in our own prayer. We might not see it from day to day. You know, as we look over time, we'll recognize that there's more fruitfulness, but uh, have a patience in your prayer. If you are showing up and you're loving Jesus and you're following him, he's going to make prayer fruitful in your life and help you become more like him, become more loving in your life. So, so finally, a way to kind of think about prayer when it comes to uh, living out um, our individual prayer life. You know, they taught us at one point in seminary, you know, an acronym to, to teach us prayer. And they called it praying like a pirate, okay? So, because it's A-R-R-R, R. Was that a good pirate voice? Thank you. So, acknowledge, relate, receive, and respond, right? A simple acronym. And I'll walk through this with this gospel that we read just to kind of help us because sometimes I think it's like, well, well, how do I pray? So I just want to give one example of how to do that when it comes to praying with the scriptures, right? Doing Alexio Divina, right? Just kind of walk through that a little bit, right? Imagine when what I would think about is this, trying to spend at least 15 minutes a day doing something like this with a scripture passage. So St. Therese, and this is quoted in the Catechism, says that prayer is a surge of the heart, a gaze turned heavenward, a cry of recognition and love embracing both trial and joy. Prayer is about relationship. So A, acknowledge. What are my thoughts, feelings, and desires? And sometimes journaling can help this a lot. And I was not a journaler at all, but in seminary I got started to do it with my prayer and it was really, really beneficial. So imagine, imagine you're doing a meditation on this passage that we just read um, from the woman on the well. And so then you're trying to start to pay attention. Okay, what is stirring up in me, in my thoughts, in my feelings, in my desires, as I'm reading this passage and reflecting and praying, right? Trying to be aware, acknowledging. What are some of the thoughts that could come up? Perhaps as you think about the woman who has to go out at the middle of the day because she's ashamed, because everyone knows who she is, maybe one of the thoughts could be, you know, I'm ashamed of who I am. Right? You know, no one cares about me. No one here is, is here to help me. 
Maybe that could start to lead towards other questions, you know? Right? I'm never going to get the garage cleaned. Right? I'll never overcome this sin in my life, for example. Right? Just acknowledge what's going on in the heart, in other words. Or maybe it's more positive feelings, experiences, or thoughts. Right? That woman leaves behind her jars. You know, I, I think I'm supposed to leave behind a jar. That woman goes and tells people about Jesus. You know, I, there's this friend in my life that has, the Lord's been putting on my heart, and maybe now's the time to invite to church, right? In other words, just pay attention to what's going on in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your desires, and then relate those to Jesus, right? Lord, I feel ashamed about this. Or Lord, I really feel like I'm supposed to reach out to this person. What do you have to say to me about that? Relate. So, so important. Give Jesus everything, good, bad, and the ugly. Jesus doesn't want an edited version of your life. Right? He doesn't love the edited version of your life. He loves you. Right? And he will transform you if you allow him into your heart. Right? Remember the story about you know Jesus is invited over to dinner to the person's house and cleaning up the house, and he's stuffing all the garbage you know, in the, clo- in the one closet, right? We all do this when guests come over, right? We stuff everything in the closet to get it out of plain sight so it looks like we've got stuff together, right? So it looks like we've got things going on. And so this person does this, and Jesus sits down, and everything, the table is fancy, everything looks great. Then he says to the person, I want to look in that door. Will you let me in that door? No, Lord, that's, that's just a bunch of junk. I want to look in there. That's what Jesus wants to do with us, too. He wants to heal us. He wants us to know that he cares for us and he loves us. So do we relate to Jesus and give him everything in our life? All right, so acknowledge, relate, and then receive. Simply to be still and to think about what does the Lord wish to give me? to show me, to tell me in this time of prayer. He's the living water. He wishes, me, he wishes to give me a drink. And this is a hard one for us because we don't like to be still. We want to go, 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 right? This is what we do, especially with our busy families, right? There's so many demands when it comes to the family, so many things to run to. It can be hard to take time simply to be still and to drink from this water. Will you let him? It's sometimes all God wants to do is simply to delight in you, right? Will we let him do this? Will we give him that time to rejoice in us, just like, you know, a parent being able to watch their child play a sport or crawl around on the floor and just to be happy doing that, right? Do we let the Lord delight in us? Will we let him do that? A lot of us don't like to go there because we think we're not worthy of that. You know, will we let him do that? Will that be allowed? Or perhaps he has some type of, you know, challenge for us, right? He, what does he tell the woman in the gospel? You've had five husbands, right? You know, ultimate love that Jesus is showing this woman in this moment, but also there's a challenge there, right? I've got more for you. I've got more for your life, right? Leave behind those water jars, right? Sometimes what we're receiving from the Lord is that gentle, ardent, and loving conviction. Like, you know, Andy, 
No. You need to change a little bit there. Right? Thank you, Lord. You're, not, you're right. I, I do. Right? Thank you for that. Right? Are we able to receive from the Lord? Right? And then to respond, to respond to him. Right? What might that mean? Simply to being able to respond in both, whether it's joy or whether it's trial in our life. Right? No, maybe it's a call to embrace some cross in our life. Maybe if you're, you know, um, talking to him about what's going on in your family, maybe it's, you know, gosh, Lord, you know, my teenager right now, you have no idea, right? She is driving me nuts, right? But as I read this gospel, I see how patient you are with this woman, you know, who had five husbands, right, and is now with the one who isn't her husband, and yet you're sitting next to her, talking to her, you know, loving her. Right? I can be patient with my teenager right? and give her the love that she needs right now. Thank you, Lord, for showing me that, right? Being able to respond to him, right? Nor maybe it's, simp- maybe it's that's kind of a cross, right? Maybe it's more of a joy, right? Gosh, Jesus wants... Me, what is that like? Thank you, Lord, for that. I'm here. I'm here for you, responding to that joy, giving him a drink, right? Giving him a drink. So, um, finally, just to kind of wrap it up, if we want to live out this call to be the kindling, you know, we want to live out this call to um, set the world, set the church on fire, it all first begins by going to the fire itself, right? And there's one fire. There's one fire, and that's Jesus himself. You know, and prayer is about simply opening up ourselves to be caught by him, to let the fire of his love into our hearts. Prayer is all about approaching Jesus and giving him that drink of our love and drinking of him as well, right? It's a really helpful image when it comes to me when it thinks about prayer, right? There might be times in which I don't want to show up to prayer because I've got other things to do, but you know what? Jesus is thirsty and so am I, and we're going to drink some water together, you know? If this is how we think about prayer, right, it will bring transformation in our life. Right? And if we let the Lord do that in our life, we will find it's going to bless our lives as we become more like him. It's going to bless marriages. It's going to bless families, parishes, and the world. But we need to think small. You know, big problems are only remedied by small solutions, normally, right? By small acts of fidelity, right? And for me, what helps me to think about that is simply this. I think about Mary. I think about Our Lady, right? God came to her and said... You know, will you bear? Will you bear my son, right, through, through the angel Gabriel? And she said yes. And look what happened. Right? One yes to God. And I think it's the same for us. If we give God that daily yes, we're going to find that transformation happens in our life and in our families. So thank you very much uh, for listening. If there's any um, questions or, uh, feel, or comments, whether comments about, like, perhaps how uh, faith or prayer has been passed on in your life and your family, perhaps uh, any questions uh, for me or comments, uh, feel free to, uh, to go for it. So thanks, thanks for listening. Thank
their perpetual distractions, your toddlers? Yeah, I mean, if he's beaten up on his little sister, you can maybe get a little mad, but yeah, yeah, but I, I, get, I get what you're saying, yeah. You know, and I was, when I was making that comment, I was thinking in particular for us, I mean, obviously sometimes with kids, like, they might not get that all the time, you know, and so obviously sometimes there's going to be going to be discipline involved but but I think it's important to try and look for those teachable moments where you can bring God in to things that seems like just you know just pretty ordinary right the holy family was an ordinary family right but Jesus was present there and always right and that's what we want in ours right I think sometimes you can do that when it comes to prayer or 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 play or even being outside just like you know you're playing outside right? And it's a beautiful, you know, you're playing in the snow, right? Don't we all love that we have snow now, right? I think it's beautiful, you know? It's also really cold, but it's really beautiful, you know? You're going out and playing in the snow with your kids or whatever, snowball fight or snow angels or something, and, you know, it's like, wow, you know? Look at how beautiful the snow is. Isn't it great that God gave this to us, right? You know, you know simple, simple ways to, to, for those teachable moments to try and Help, help us see that God is present. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I think that's really important because I think it's, sometimes we can think that our distractions are somehow, sometimes it's our distractions that God wants us to be bringing to him because that's the source of perhaps where some of our anxiety is, which he wants to bring healing to, right? You know, maybe it's a concern about a job. Oh, I just, I don't want to think about that right now. I just want to be focused on God right now. Well, maybe that's what he wants to bring right? Because he cares about that. He cares about that. So sometimes the distraction is actually where he's trying to bring you in. But the goal is not just to like be thinking about the distraction, like, well, I've got, you know, these problems, maybe I could do, fix it this way, maybe I could fix it this way, maybe I could fix it this way, these types of things. But to, as you said, to direct it to the Lord. Lord, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what it, how it's making me feel. I want to give this to you. Is there anything you want to tell me about this, right? Different way of responding to that. So... Sorry, I I just mentioned it quick. It was the redemption of the firstborn. So um, in Exodus uh, 13, um, you know, the firstborn male is set apart to the Lord, whether animal or man. This was part of the legislation. But then, um, so the firstborn animal would, would would be killed, right? Offered to the Lord. Harking back to, to Exodus when the firstborn was killed, the, the 10th plague. But the firstborn child would be redeemed, right? Would be redeemed. You know, and this is essentially what would, the father would tell his son. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it was meant to convey to them, to remind them of the mighty hand that God had in freeing them from slavery. But... It also meant more than that. It had an existential dimension for the father. In the Jewish consciousness, it essentially meant, you know, the father is taking responsibility for forming this child in the Torah, for forming this child in the law of God. This ritual had this consciousness for the father. I'm taking responsibility for this child informing him in God's law, right? Subordinating his own needs to the needs of the child. And it, grew, it, it would leave an impression, I mean, ideally, right? It'd leave an impression on the child that like, look, I, 
I'm wanted. I'm wanted by my father. And that would automatically then have a projection. I'm wanted by God. So this ritual of redemption of the firstborn would call to mind God set us free from um, slavery, right? Slavery to Egypt, but also for the father, clear sense, right? I'm taking responsibility for this child, informing him in the covenant, informing him in the law. Very clear sense for the father that this was happening. And uh, uh, left an impression on the child as well that they were wanted, wanted in their family, loved and cherished by God. So redemption of the firstborn. You know, and I think every family is going to find like simple traditions, you know, to do, to do that. And it, it doesn't need to be over the, it just needs to be intentional. It doesn't need to be over, over the top or a long period of time or things like that, but it just needs to kind of be intentional, right? I mean, if a family could spend, you know, 15 minutes a day, even, you know, praying together, maybe lighting a candle, maybe singing a song, maybe, you know, um, praying a decade of the rosary or reading a little bit of scripture, talking about, you know, blessings of the day, things like this, you know, maybe encouraging, you know, kids to think about, all right, you know, how did Jesus bless you today? Or maybe where were some ways in which you, you know, you know, you sinned today, tell them in your heart you're sorry, or things like that. Simple, simple things. It doesn't need to be long necessarily, but looking for some, some intentional way, you know, to bring it into the family. You know, and then, and, and then of course, right, always connecting it to the life of the church as a whole, right? Right, that the, the Eucharist and the Sunday worship is the center. Right, it's the center. And that's really essential, right? Because that's where the Lord says, this is my body given for you. That's where we are present to the gift of himself in the Eucharist. You know, and that's, it's from the Eucharist that we discover how to live out our call, right, as Christians, including our call in the family. You know, um, uh, Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, before became Pope Benedict, he said, you know, every food we eat is assimilated into us. But the Eucharist is the one food we eat that assimilates us into it. Right? Right? When we eat the Eucharist, in other words, right, we're becoming more like Christ, right? right? And we're able to then go out into the world and into our families and to live a Eucharistic life, which is essentially say, what? To live that life of a loving, joyful sacrifice, right? right? This is my body given for you, right? Which is what Jesus says to us, but is also, you know, the call of the Christian. And when I think about that, this is the image I, I think about for me. I really love the image, and, you know, maybe you have kids or grandkids, some of my nieces and nephews, you know, they'll draw pictures, like, for Christmas, you know, and give them to me. And uh, some are really good drawers, some are not as much, um, and I relate to those because I can't draw worth, worth a lick, but I love those gifts. I absolutely love those gifts. I don't care like how much, how terrible it was, you know, from an objective point of view. I love those gifts, right? I think of that image when I think about our life as Christians, you know, you know, when I try to think about, you know, my, my daily life is in a certain sense, one way to think about that one image among many is I'm just trying to draw a picture for the Lord, right? right? And maybe it doesn't look all that great, but I tell you what, it brings him a lot of joy, right? In other words, like even if I seem like I don't have it all together, being, doing whatever I'm doing, doing it out of love for him and offering it to him, 
That is a great gift that he's going to rejoice in, even if I can't color in the lines, right? Because it's done out of love and it's because it's given to the one who loves me, right? Remember one time, we would always give dandelions to my mom as a kid, going out and picking dandelions, right? Always. And we were so proud, you know, and she would just smile at us, you know, and say, thank you, they're beautiful, right? It's a weed, And I gave it to my mom, right? But you know what? I think that gifts are transformed when they're given to the one that loves us. And they become far more amazing than they are just on their own. And and I think about that with our life as Christians. Isn't it true we often like feel like maybe we don't have a lot to offer the Lord, but if we offer it with love and he accepts it with love, he is going to bring transformation to that, you know? doing that, whatever it is, right? Whether it's, it's a time of prayer, it's time at work, you know, time simply being together with the family, time laboring in the home or whatever the case, doing the yard work, whatever it is, you know, trying to do that with love and offering that as a gift to the Lord, right? That's precious to him, right? We might think it's a dandelion, but, you know, he loves to receive that from our hands, you know? So, and I think the family does so much, as I just shared that, my, you know, my mom, how my mom responded to a gift like that that tells us so much about how God relates to us, right? And how God responds to us in our life. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, it's an analogy. Um, that's exactly what it is, right? Jesus from the cross is saying, I thirst. He's not just thirsty for, for water, though that's true, but he's expressing something. He's expressing a the desire that led him to the cross in the first place, right? That he loves us. He wants us with him, right? And that's always the case, right? Mother Teresa said he's thirsting for souls and he's thirsting for our love, right? That's what she said when, he, when she reflected on that passage. You know, and that's, and that's true. And as I said, the catechism says that, uses this image of the two people coming to the well, of being an image for prayer, an encounter of God's thirst with our own, Before we even come to prayer, God is thirsting for us, drawing us to himself. It's not just something we're going to, something we're being drawn to, which God is waiting, uh, awaiting, right? Because he longs for us. He longs longs for our love. And that's what we long for too, right? We long for relationship, right? We can't live without it. We can't live without intimacy in our life. 